Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. It wasn't too long ago that Greece seemed to be going from crisis to crisis, with Grexit being thrown around as a real possibility. Today we're seeing Greece described as a European success story. Peter Spiegel, the U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times, joins me to discuss Greece's transformation from the depths of the financial crisis to today. We look at the importance of maintaining this momentum after the upcoming elections, while placing this discussion within the broader context of global uncertainties, from the banking sector to Ukraine and the U.S.-China rivalry. Peter, it's great to have you on The Greek Current. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Peter, having followed Greece from the beginning of its financial crisis, what do you make of this shift from discussions around Grexit to now being hailed as a European success story? Well, it is remarkable. It is remarkable. And frankly, it's nice to come back to Greece and not have to discuss political and economic and financial chaos. You know, I, I've, I've started starting calling Greece, you know, a normal Eurozone country again. It still is not out of the woods. The debt levels are still very high. There's still a lot of economic problems in this country. We're not back to the level where we were you know, pre-crisis. But the kind of crises and the, the issues that they're dealing with here in Greece are not dissimilar from other major Eurozone economies, Italy, uh, Spain, you know, where you have issues of debt and issues of inflation and, and the sort of the almost the more rudimentary issues that affect your average Eurozone economy. So it is a remarkable turnaround. You know, there are a lot of people who should get credit. Now, you obviously have, we're in election season here. And so you're, you're very much focused on Tsipras versus Mitsotakis. You know, Mitsotakis has had a pretty good record over the last four years, you know, sort of capitalized by the, the recent S&P upgrade. I think if you talk to the Syriza people, they would say, look, they're building on on what we did initially, you know, obviously the first year was incredibly chaotic and, and let's be honest, dug an even deeper hole for Greece. But, you know, there was the Kolotumba, <laughs> um, you know, Cyprus turned uh, himself around the last three years and did become the, the good student there. So he also has a record he can build on. So, you know, it's a combination of factors. It's the financial markets finally deciding that Greece is worth investing in. But it's a remarkable uh, change of events. Greece is on the cusp of regaining investment grade. You know, it's been praised as one of the economic winners of 2022 and is performing particularly well compared to its Eurozone partners. You brought up that there's still things that need to be done. Is maintaining this momentum going to be crucial following the elections next month? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, maintaining the confidence in the financial markets, not just the financial markets, but investors more broadly, because obviously they're the financial investors. But what we have seen is an increase in both domestic and foreign direct investment. And any economy needs that kind of investment to grow over the medium and long term. So that will be crucial. I think you know, what the S&P upgrade does, and if it does follow on to investment grade, it reinforces this narrative that Greece is a safe place to do business now, which is, as you say, just a market turnaround from where we were in, in sort of 2016. And, and that momentum just needs to keep up. You know, you can't get complacent. I, I talked to someone in Athens, one of my old sources, who said, you know, remember Argentina under Macri. Macri was a, a very market-friendly prime minister of Argentina who didn't some argued, went over the markets, went over investors, and then didn't keep up the hard work of reforming the economy, of reforming the state, and was out of office a year later. So there's no room for complacency here. It's not like debt levels are in sustainable levels. As I said, GDP per capita is still below where we were pre-crisis. And look, we're in a, in a cost of living crisis. You know, inflation is, is not going away anytime soon. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it's not that much different, as I said, from a lot of other developed countries, both in the Arizona and outside the Arizona. So would that be your message then to any investor that would be looking at Greece from the outside and considering, you know, putting their money in Greece? I think so. I think so. I mean, look, you know, I think if I were thinking about investing right now, I might wait, wait a few weeks to see the outcome of the election. 
as I said, I, I don't. I think Cipres is not the Cipres we knew when he first came into office. The name of the party has the words "radical left" in them if you translate them in English. So you know that is going to put off anyone who who is likely to think about investing under a Cipres government. There is also the outside chance that if uh, he needs to form a coalition, that a part of the coalition is. Our old friend Yanis Varoufakis, he's a figure that also makes a lot of investors nervous. So I think you would see some nervousness if it's a suppressed government, but I don't think it's the kind of nervousness that we saw back in the battle days. And I think there are enough of the reforms and enough of the progress has been made that the system is pretty resilient regardless who wins the election. Speaking of the system, global banking has been in the spotlight over the last months, whether it's Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, or questions about interest rates and inflation. This has naturally also raised questions in Greece, and you hosted a panel on this at the Delphi Economic Mm. Forum on Wednesday. Looking ahead, what do you see as the biggest challenges for Greek and global banking systems? Well, there are a couple of things here. I mean, the the remarkable thing this time around is the banking crisis, or what we call in the U.S. March Madness, because it was largely contained to March, was contained mostly into U.S. regional banks and then, of course, Switzerland with Credit Suisse UBS drama. And although there was a day or two where, where Deutsche Bank sort of shuddered a bit, the Arizona banking system has come emerged rather unscathed, which, uh, you know, given the history, is rather remarkable. Now, my question to my mind, is this an accident or is this, is this intentional? I mean, obviously, an intentional is a long word, but is this by design? Has the Eurozone done enough that it has the kind of strength in the regulatory system to avoid these kind of crises? I, I'm just not convinced. I think, look, you know, you can regulate all you want. But you know these kind of crises come out of places that no one expects. No one expected Silicon Valley banks. Well, I must say this, the Financial Times warned about it about a month in advance. No one expected some of these other banks to fail. You know, if you think back to the original Eurozone banking crisis, there were banks like Anglo Irish and Dexia and the Cajas in Spain. These are not banks that were on anyone's radars. So they come out of nowhere. And I think to say that our system is so safe that nothing like this can happen again is a bit naive. That said, the nature of the Eurozone banking system is unlike the U.S. regional banks, in which they were catering to a very wealthy clientele, a very narrow clientele in Silicon Valley. Here, it's a much more broad-based deposit base. So you're not going to get the kind of deposit fight you saw. But uh, Luis de Guindos was on a panel just before I, I was on stage, and he made a very interesting point. He's the, the vice president of the ECB now, former Spanish finance minister. And he said the thing that keeps him up at night is what they saw at Silicon Valley Bank was a combination of rapid deposit flight facilitated by online banking. Right? You don't have to go down to the bank branch anymore to take your money out. You can just do it with a click of a switch. Combined with social media, where people start talking, oh my God, do you know what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank? Get your money out. That combination is lethal, it is fast, and can affect any bank. And that was what got him, what he noticed about Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank itself is a bit sui generis, but it was not necessarily a badly run bank. It had most of its money in relatively safe investments like treasury bonds. It was catering to a community that was very wealthy, and, and, and it was just suddenly, the word got out that there was trouble at the bank, social media took over, and people just moved their money electronically. And that's a new phenomenon in the banking system. I don't think the Eurozone or Greece or anyone is immune to that kind of, of rapid, frankly, bank runs. All of these developments, inflation, questions about the banking system, they're taking place amid serious geopolitical tensions. For example, Ukraine, the competition between the United States and China. How do you see all of this playing out, especially with regards well, to the I economy? I guess I would say, you know, if you were look at, at sort of global threats right now to stability, I am relatively calm about both banking and inflation. I mean, inflation is not a good thing, but... We've seen central banks, ECB in particular, and the Fed, act rather aggressively. It's starting to come down. The question is, how sticky is it and how quickly is it going to come down? 
I also think, you know, if you look at the history of the recent inflationary pressures, they're kind of weird and unique and very much tied to the pandemic, right? We all stopped spending on services and started spending on goods, right? We all went on Amazon, started buying things for our houses. We were locked down for months on end. And you saw the manifestations of that. You saw, you know, ships unable to park at the Port of Los Angeles. You saw, you know, microprocessors, shortages everywhere, supply chain disruptions, all this kind of stuff. And the system has been taking a long time to, to work itself out. And I would, I know this is unfashionable to say, but I would consider myself part of team transitory. I think this is going to work its way out, which itself out eventually. The economies are remaining strong. The central bankers are doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'm relatively calm about both the banking system and, and the inflation. The geopolitics, though, you mentioned, I think is a much more problematic near-term problem. Because what you're seeing is, well, two events. Obviously, the militarization, or at least the military rhetoric coming out of Beijing, but also obviously Russia's the invasion of Ukraine. And the two things are, are connected in this way. I think if you go and travel the world and you talk to governments, not just here in Europe, but in East Asia and around the world, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shaken and rattled a lot of assumptions that we have made in the post-war rules-based era, right? The Russians just basically violated what we thought were the norms. And if you're sitting in Tokyo, for instance, and you're looking at what's happening in China, and you thought, okay, the rules-based order is such that the Americans with a nuclear umbrella are going to protect us. Well, but the rules-based order doesn't exist anymore. I now need to rearm. And we saw that at the end of December, Japanese announced a new, much more militant uh, adoption of a long-range strike, um, which the Japanese never used to talk about before because of the threat posed by China. Other allies in that region, South Korea, uh, is defense buildup. The president was just in, in Washington, where there's now much more cooperation on nuclear weaponry on the Korean Peninsula. Obviously, the Australians now are partnering with the U.S. and the U.K. on a new submarine fleet. The Philippines, where you had for generations real resentment to the Americans over a colonial past, is inviting the Americans back in now to the military bases that were once used by the Americans. So I think you know the, the reason I focus on Asia is we see sometimes, I think, focus a little bit too much on the implications for Ukraine on Europe and maybe broadly the NATO alliance. But actually, it has changed thinking globally. And it has changed thinking in a way where, again, the rules-based order that we've come to assume secures us for 70 years may no longer be operational, and therefore everyone's rearming. And that, you know, if we don't have a rules-based order and everyone's rearming, is a real medium-term risk. And that, to me, if you look at the, the new term of our, of our age, is, is megathreats. To me, that megathreat is the one that I worry about the most, much more so than inflation running away or the banking system collapsing. Given what you've just laid out, Peter, and bringing us back to Greece, what then do you think should be top of mind for Greek policymakers and political leaders as they look to tackle you know, these questions about the economy, about geopolitics, uh, and where Greece fits in in this broader picture? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm American, as you can tell from the accent, so I, I'm a little bit biased in this regard. It has been interesting to me to watch Greece fully side with their NATO allies and with the U.S. on Ukraine. I'm not sure that was necessarily given. I mean, again, it's been a while since I've been back here, but I know there are historic ties, cultural and religious, between Greece and Russia. But the fact the government came out very pro-NATO, very pro-Ukraine, with very limited domestic objections was very telling to me. And I think it puts Greece in a good position vis-a-vis other security threats in the region, most notably Turkey. You know, you have an administration here in Washington that is, I don't want to say they're taking sides on this, but clearly the Biden has come in with an anti-authoritarian, pro-democracy point of view and puts Erdogan in the camp that is leaning towards authoritarianism. So Mitsotakis comes to, to Washington, addresses Congress. So you've seen, I think, some smart geopolitical decisions made by the government here backed in many ways by other parties. 
And I think it's positioned itself relatively well when it comes to those geopolitical threats. It also has positioned itself relatively well in the global economy. I think the problems, which you guys know better than I do, are much more domestic and political. I mean, the train crash, I mean, what an event, both from human tragedy, but also from a sense that, okay, if this is a government of competence, a government that really prides itself in technocratic competence, how could something like this happen? And, and look, there's investigations and there's blame to be cast around, but I think that really undermines Mitsotakis's case when he goes to the, to the voters. And then, of course, from an international perspective, the phone tapping scandal, it got a lot of noise. And again, tends to reinforce Mitsotakis's sort of whether it's well-earned or not, has a bit of reputation as a little bit arrogant, a little bit authoritarian, and certainly that's what his critics say, reinforces some of those stereotypes. So those two things in many ways undermine the case he has built of competence on the economy, on on COVID, on foreign policy. And I think those two things are going to play themselves out over the next, you know, four to six weeks as the election really gins up. Peter, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks again for joining us. Always good to talk about Greece. In other news, the U.S. is expected to send a clear message that the qualitative advantage that Greece has acquired through the gradual upgrading of its military power must be maintained. Katimarini understands that the State Department has already approved the delivery of two C-130 aircraft to Greece. The State Department is preparing to officially notify Congress to launch the relevant procedure, while it is also expected to announce an agreement with Greece to purchase two new C-130 transport aircraft. Furthermore, after the elections in Turkey and before the elections in Greece, Congress will add the last of the four signatures required to activate the official process of acquiring the F-35 fighter jets. Finally, Russian President Putin hailed Moscow's burgeoning energy and economic ties with Ankara on Thursday as he and Turkish President Erdogan took part virtually in a ceremony inaugurating Turkey's first nuclear power plant. Russia's state nuclear energy company Rosatom built the Akuyu nuclear plant, and Thursday ceremony saw the first loading of nuclear fuel into the first power unit. This is a flagship project, Putin said. It brings both mutual economic benefits and, of course, helps to strengthen the multifaceted partnership between our two states. Erdogan thanked Putin for his support on Akuyu, adding, We will take steps to build the second and a third nuclear power plant in Turkey as soon as possible. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>